1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies. This is Samantha Williams, one of your hosts. And today I'm speaking with Carla Joynson, the author of the book Vanished in Hiawatha, the story of the Canton Asylum for Insane Indians, which is published by the University of Nebraska Press. This book examines the history of the Canton Asylum, which was also called the Hiawatha Asylum, that housed Native American patients between 1902 and 1934 in Canton, South Dakota. Carla, thank you for being with us today. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Excellent. And can you tell us a little bit about your background and your research interests?
0: Yes, I uh, I have a bachelor's degree in food and nutrition, and I have a master's in history, and I have a, a wide range of interests in between. Um, mm-hmm. I spent years as a freelancer uh, mm-hmm. writing magazine articles, and I always say I can research anything but brain surgery. Um, <laughs> had a special interest in American history, sort of between the period of the Civil War and the Depression, and um, I'm particularly interested in the history of medicine. Mm. uh, In my life,
1: I'm, I'm able to pursue that. So that said, I'd like to ask you how you came across this topic and why you decided to write a book about the Canton Asylum for Insane Indians.
0: I had just finished up. A, uh, a young adult biography of Mary Edwards Walker, who was a doctor in the civil during the Civil War, and I wanted to work on another book, you know, just to have something to work on between other assignments. And I'd been mulling over something to do with insane asylums, which I had associated up to that point with strictly Victorian England. And um, as I started doing some sort of unfocused searching on the internet about asylums and so on, I found this website. Don't know is that it's up anymore, but at the time it was that talked about some of the issues of the Hiawatha Asylum, and for a while I really honestly wasn't sure that this was a real place. I didn't know if it was fiction, if it was you know a novel in progress, and just this idea of an insane asylum for Indians, and and I'm going to use that terminology because I was immersed in it as I researched the book. Um, it's really hard for me to grasp, um, but once I was convinced this place existed, I, I figured if I was that interested, I could not get it out of my mind, and I thought
1: if I was that interested, other people might be too. Absolutely. Now, one of the interesting things about your book is that it talks about the fact that this was an insane asylum that was solely for Native Americans. So can you explain a little bit how it was that this institution was established and maybe how it was different or similar from other asylums across the country at the same time. I really think that
0: if Native peoples had not been wards of the U.S. government, it never could have happened. At that time, states, almost every state had one or two or more asylums. Uh, That wasn't unusual at all, but they served their own state residents there never would have been enough potentially mentally ill Native Americans to justify a separate asylum in any one state. Um, And it was a pretty prevalent, prevalently held belief uh, that actually um, seems to be true from existing data that Indians, as they were always called, uh, weren't terribly susceptible to mental illness. And so I just don't think at the state level anything like that could have happened. They were uh, Native Americans were wards of the government at that time. Most were concentrated on reservations, and an Indian agent uh, named Peter Couchman, uh, and agents were people who sort of supervised uh, affairs on reservations, and they interfaced with the Indian Office, uh, the Indian Service, you know, whatever you wanted to call it. Wrote a letter in 1897 to the Indian Office, and he was just discussing some of the poor conditions that. Indians faced on reservations if they had mental illness. And he sort of explained that state facilities set up for non-Native people uh, didn't like to accept Natives uh, because they were wards of the government. And when they something, they charged, he considered fees for that. And then the Native patients usually faced a lot of prejudice. And so he asked the simplest, probably kind of common sense question, I think, should there be a, a, an asylum specifically for Indians? And um, there was a lot of back and forth maneuvering about this question. Um, most of the experts at the time didn't feel that one was necessary. And politicians, though, especially the, the South Dakota Senator um, Richard Pettigrew, did want one. I I think he considered this would be great for the state to have, and eventually the politicians won. And Pettigrew uh, happened to be the chairman of the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs, and so he had a lot of pull. And in my opinion, this was just a pork barrel project. Um, Pettigrew had a hard time even dredging up 60 potential (laughs) Native Americans after they polled the reservations to see what kind of need was out there. And the thinking at the time was that you had to have, to run an asylum efficiently, you had to have at least 250 patients. And later on it was revised to 500 patients. And so to have maybe 60 patients just did not make sense. And, um, and it was, I think, purely a political uh, gambit on Pettigrew's part. And there was also a federal asylum. There was one other one uh, in existence, and that was in Washington, D.C., and it served the uh, insane of the Army, Navy, and District of Columbia, and they very well could have found patients there. Um, there were uh, Pettigrew, I think, uh, discovered there were seven uh, Indians actually under treatment in hospitals for mental illness, and five of them were already being treated at the government hospital for the insane. So they're really – I don't think was a need for it and and could never have been justified at the state level.
1: Hmm. So, you know, one of the things that you discuss in the book is who gets committed and why they get committed. And so I'm curious if, if you could explain a little bit about who was chosen to enter the asylum, because sometimes, you know, actually in many cases, it seemed as if the individuals who were committed uh, had no choice in the matter or they were people who were considered to be troublesome. And so could you talk about that a little bit?
0: First of all, only Native peoples were admitted. And they came in for a lot of different reasons. Um, You know, uh, the gamut, melancholia, dementia, various types, mania, paranoia, schizophrenia. Of course, they didn't have some of those terms. And just like other asylums uh, did, they were also committed for things like um, alcoholic insanity and epilepsy and syphilitic insanity. And these were things that sort of manifested some symptoms of uh, mental illness, though they were physical problems. Uh, but that, that kind of happened everywhere. And I guess I probably need to, to uh, go back and point out the ways that the, this asylum was different and the ways it was very similar to, to other asylums in the country. As I mentioned, you know, the patient population was definitely uh, very uh, different and and it was so much smaller than other institutions. And that was really a problem because the um, they, they didn't have any economies of scale or, or um, efficiencies that go with running a large facility. And so their per capita um, expenses were at least the first part of the uh, asylum's existence, were very, very high. Um, And that led to some penny penny pinching and um, poor staffing, you know, reluctance uh, to throw more money into it. Um, And another really striking difference was that it it pulled in patients from across the country. State asylums serve their own state. And they actually um, created more asylums as populations grew, uh, so that people from one side of the state didn't have to go all the way over to the other side of the state to get treatment. And it was a, a localized uh, geographic kind of treatment. But when Native peoples were committed, they might travel six, seven, eight hundred miles to go to the Canton Asylum, and that just tore them away from everything they knew. Uh, their brother in their environment. Uh, They went on this long, strange journey. Uh, You know, it had to have been terrifying. And and most other people didn't experience that. You know, it does not equate from going to a city to the country. You know, it just was a totally different experience. And the, the long distance made it very hard for family members to visit or keep in touch with them because most Indians were very, very poor and many didn't speak english and they couldn't negotiate a train ride or a train schedule and that sort of thing so it was just terribly terribly isolating on many levels uh for them well and and another you know terrible <laughs> problem was that there were uh 53 tribes at least that ended up being in the asylum and all these tribes had different customs and different languages and not a lot of the patients spoke English, and that just lent a uh, just an added level to the problems that you're going to have in any kind of institution.
1: So the patients and physicians were not necessarily able to communicate with one with one another accurately either. Then I would I would assume.
0: That was a, a tremendous, tremendous drawback. And for the first five years of the asylum, it wasn't even run by a psychiatrist. It was run by just a former mayor of Canton, mm-hmm. and uh, that was. But uh, you know, it, it it started off with a lot of things against it. I think just by its very name. Yeah.
1: Well, can you describe what the conditions were actually like at the facility, too? What native patients would have experienced when there?
0: Well, um, because this goes over 30 years, the conditions changed. When it was new, it probably was wonderful, you know, considering it was an asylum that nobody wanted to go to. But, you know, the facility was new. It was uh, had the modern conveniences. It was on a beautiful uh, landscaped area, which um, many people felt that helped uh, mentally ill people, you know, feel better and, and uh, recover. And during these early years, the patients, uh, there weren't that many of them. This is a very unusual situation. Most asylums in the U.S. got overcrowded very fast, and the state would build another one to catch the overflow, and that new one would get overcrowded very fast. But when the camp um, was built, it didn't uh, have very many patients for a long time. So, you know, what staff there was could give them some attention and and uh, patients were able to go out and fish on the river. They could uh, gather some berries. They could have picnics. They could, you know, play games on the lawn and, and uh, things like that. And so it probably, for being the institution it was, wasn't all that bad, but it deteriorated very quickly. And, um, That was was a real problem, and one problem was that there was nobody who was actually, because their staffing was so limited and overstretched and all that, there was nobody who was designated to, uh, you know, say, fix a broken step or, you know, uh, hammer something that was broken into place or or do any kind of maintenance, and it was just sort of catch-as-catch-can with whatever staff at a spare moment. And so it was pretty easy to um, let the place get run down. And, um, and it showed it apparently in some of the investigations, uh, the asylum wasn't faulted so much for its dinginess um, because the, uh, the coal they used was soft and it burned very dirty and and just made everything dingy. And they weren't really faulted for that. But if you were living there, uh, you were breathing that kind of sooty air in and uh, and living in sort of a, a dismal place very soon. So um, I have never seen, I don't know if one exists. I'm hoping that things will start coming out as as uh, people learn more about the asylum. I have never seen a picture of the inside of the asylum. I really don't know this, but it, it had to be fairly bare bones, I would think. And And I do know from some of the, correspondence I saw that uh, you know patients you know they might fight or whatever and rather than actually address that problem Dr. Hummer simply took pictures off the wall or you know anything that they could have used as a weapon or um, you know hurt themselves with or whatever he just got rid of it and so I I get the impression it was a very drab place after a while.
1: You mentioned um, Dr. Hummer, Harry Hummer, who was the longtime superintendent of the Canton Asylum. Can you talk a little bit about what he was like as an administrator and what was his philosophy regarding mental health and about Native peoples in general?
0: Dr. Hummer, I think, uh, came in probably fairly charged up about his assignment. Uh, He was... um, he had graduated from Georgetown Medical uh, School, and he worked at Columbia Hospital in D.C. for a little while, and then he took an internship at Saint Elizabeth's, which is the, the, the common name for the government hospital for the insane. And that was a fairly prestigious place, and, and uh, certainly uh, innovative, and uh, had some really good staff on it. Uh, and the only reason I can even fathom that he would would have accepted a position at this very much smaller institution was that he would be able to run it and that would be prestigious and a step up for him. And so I, I imagine he was pretty excited about going there and, and, uh, being able to implement, you know, his own philosophies and all that. And I, I think that probably when he got there, um, it, it seems at first that he put into practice some of the things he had done at St. Elizabeth's. I saw a couple and unfortunately the uh, patient records are not very complete, but I did see a couple of patient records that were, you know, well written out and, and some discussion about the patient's uh, problems and progress and so on. But as he actually delved into the the really horrendous problems of trying to get 53 different languages and customs um, meshing together in any way that would resolve mental illness. I think he kind of gave up. Um, I don't think uh, at at the time there was uh, early on in the um, history of mental, the treatment of mental illness in the asylum era, which was when it started being a little bit kinder uh, than just chaining someone to a outhouse somewhere and, you know, whipping the madness out of them. Um, there, there was terminology, they called these people unfortunates, you know, they really felt sorry for the condition and, and that sort of thing, but by the time Dr. Hummer came along it was very common to call these people "defectives." and that was Hummer's language, was "defectives." there was, you know, these people were defective and he had a very superior attitude regardless I mean, he, he felt superior to his staff, to people in, in Canton, to, you know Probably, I don't know anyone outside his own particular friendship sphere, but, uh, you know, he, he looked on Indians, I'm sure, as, as a defective race because a lot of Americans did. Um, one of the, the things that was so appalling about the government's treatment of Native Americans was they totally dismissed their culture and totally dismissed anything that was valuable about the, the Native American, uh, Way of life, and and said, "Hey, you're not good enough. You know, come be adopt all these American Anglo ways, and and then you'll be good enough." And so I I think he had a double dose of that sense of superiority, and and uh, he would not try. Uh, he made it pretty clear from the onset he wasn't going to bother to learn about their culture or anything important to him, to them, and he made no effort whatsoever. To try and get interpreters in, I, I see that as one of the biggest issues with the whole asylum was that there was it was there were people who could speak English, but that certainly wasn't the majority, and and there was just no attempt to try and and speak to people on any kind of level that there could have would have allowed communication. And I often think, how could you diagnose someone? with any kind of a mental illness when you can't speak their language. Uh, I, I just found it uh, absolutely um, mind-boggling that he would even try. And uh, so anyway, I, I think that uh, as an administrator, uh, he did not have his, to some extent, you know, and I don't mean to paint the man with just, you know, he's devil incarnate because he wasn't, he human being but I don't think to a great extent that he tried to do anything that would actually heal them of mental illness I think the ones who got well got well because they got away from whatever the situation was that caused them to have a problem Uh, you know maybe he had some sort of program that doesn't show up I don't know but I don't think he made many efforts to really try and help them um
1: Now, do you do you connect Hummer's leadership with the deterioration of conditions over time at the Canton Asylum? I do. I I am not sure that it's
0: completely to blame, but um, actually, I think he ended up hiding. You know, I think he got frustrated with trying to do anything uh, discernible with his patients that would make him feel like, oh, I've cured you know, I've got an 80 percent cure rate or anything that would make him feel proud. And and so he sort of started hiding behind his administrative tasks. And he always spent a lot more time, it seemed to me, on buildings and livestock and running the place outside of the patients needed. I think he, he just began to immerse himself in other details because probably the, the patient care was so frustrating. I don't know. Um, and and had an untrained staff. You know, it, it was uh, out in uh, South Dakota. You were not going to get a a lot of people vying to be an attendant who had a lot of training or anything. And but at the same time, we didn't have a training program. You know, there are so many things that contributed. But he could have fixed them if he had put some effort into it. And I, I just don't think he did. I think he gave up more than anything.
1: Well, and it, it, you also detail, you know, a number of investigations of conditions at the asylum. And it seems like, you know, even though the conditions were not excellent and certainly were not good at all for for the patients that Hummer remained in charge and, you know, he continued to be entrusted to run the organization. How do you um, how do you explain that? I think, especially at first, one of the real primary reasons was that no one who
0: inspected him had any kind of psychiatric training, so they were in no or medical training at all, and so they were in no position whatsoever to really know whether he was doing a good job or not. And um, after he managed to oust his his last assistant physician, he was the only medical person there for almost the rest of the asylum's lifespan. So the the Canton Asylum fell under this the school system rather than the medical system. And so inspectors who came out were the same kinds of people who inspected boarding schools and um, places like that. And so they didn't have the kind of um, medical expertise that would have allowed them to point out, you know, deficiencies there. And just like other um, asylums everywhere, mani- uh, Hummer very well managed to just point out the best of the asylum. You know, it was very common in asylums to have what they call the award that visitors went to, and, and it had the quietest people and so on and so forth, and presented very nicely. And I'm sure that Hummer did the same thing. And he did keep his buildings nice, and, and uh, you know, could talk about all of his efforts to, you know, have a good garden and so on and so forth. And uh, these were the type of things that were going to resonate more with the type of inspectors he got. And you know, very frequently, that's what they talked about in their inspection report was, you know, how nice the buildings were, and you know, how he made progress in his cattle herd and so on and so forth. And and there wasn't much of anything said about patient care because they just couldn't, they weren't. Competent to judge it, I guess, um, and nobody else was in the job. <laughs> you know what I think. Um, you know, when, when he applied for the job, that he was only one of two candidates, and the other candidate uh, had a misunderstanding about pay and, and wasn't interested in it. And I think the Indian Service realized it was not a particularly attractive job; that they were not going to get many people to replace him. And I'm
1: sure that that helped him
0: uh, for a long time.
1: Interesting. Now, but at, at, at some point, federal officials did decide to close Canton, and they did take notice of the conditions. Can you sort of explain how that happened and, you know, what happened to the patients? And if you know, what happened to Hummer afterwards?
0: For the most part, particularly up until the, say, at least mid to late 1920s, inspectors tended to be fairly sympathetic. You know, Hummer could make a good case about why a particular issue wasn't working out. And um, so I think they, they tried to give him the benefit of the doubt uh, for the most part. Um, He got caught in trying to put the blame on a lot of his staff, you know, and that was his kind of go-to position uh, many times. He had a lot of staff conflicts but there were some inspectors very early on within the first two or three years of his administration who recognized he simply could not run the place the way he should because of his personality and, and uh, character traits that, that didn't go down well with the uh, the staff. And they recommended he be replaced. Um, though, again, who are they going to replace him with? And uh, for a long time, that was kind of good enough for him. Um He had friends in Congress. Um, Asylum work was losing its prestige. There just really weren't going to be too many people who wanted to to go there. And finally, um, medical staff started visiting the place. I I think in the mid-1920s, I remember particularly Dr. Emil Krulich, uh, began to he was not a psychiatrist, but he was a, a medical director and he would go out there and and he at least could assess the kind of care that that they were patients were getting and he could assess the staffing issues and and so on. And he made a lot of recommendations that would have, you know, he recommended getting nurses out there. And of course, they ran into the problem that nurses didn't want to particularly go out to South Dakota and work because these were civil service positions um, but he did make the recommendations, and he he started holding Hummer a, a lot more accountable for what he was doing. Um, one other, I think, major thing that started to change was that by the mid 1920s, attitudes towards Native Americans had changed. There were reformers out there who were bringing some of some of the really unjust. Um, issues out. There were people who were exposing conditions on reservations and uh, not at Canton, but in the general Indian population, there was a hugely uh, influential report called The Problem with the Indian Administration that came out, you know, two, three hundred pages of, of just nothing but negative, uh, you know, findings and so on. And, and so there was some public notice that Native Americans were not being treated well. And some of these people uh, finally got into a position of power. And the I think one of the most important things that happened was that finally after the Indian office got a lot of heat for the way Indians were being treated and conditions on reservations and so on, the uh, Commissioner of Indian Affairs, Charles Burke, finally called for a really thorough investigation of the asylum because there were little incidents that kept popping up. And this time, instead of sending someone from the, associated with the Indian office, they sent someone from St. Elizabeth's, the the sister um, federal institution, a doctor uh, who was a psychiatrist and who was not affiliated with the Indian, Indian office. And this guy raked them over the coals. And that's where some of these really horrific um, descriptions of the place come from. That was in 1929. And he got a lot of attention, but right at that time um, the secretary of the interior actually wanted to shut the place down, but there were some powerful people in Congress who wanted to keep it open. And then the depression hit. And I think it just got shuffled into the background. Of course, it would have cost money to shut it down and transfer all these people. And they would have had to make some room at St. Elizabeth's and there wasn't money to build and so on and so forth. And it just got put on hold. And um, finally, after FDR got elected and he got John Collier and Harold Ickes into uh, office as uh, Commissioner of Indian Affairs and Secretary of the Interior, respectively, those were reformers who were on the side of Native Americans. And when Collier was contacted by the wife of a patient, he looked into the Canton Asylum and he was just absolutely appalled. And at this point, um, it just things had changed. The situation had changed. Collier knew how to fight. And I think that made all the difference in the world. He had power and he knew what to do. And, and he got it shut down. Much more quickly than anybody would have anticipated from its real long track record of of, uh, nothing ever being done. So
1: one of the things that I think you do successfully in your book is you really discuss how this institution existed at a particular Place and time in U.S. history, in the history of U.S. Indian policy, you know that sort of uh, goes into the Indian New Deal period and a, and a period of reform. So, I am wondering, overall, how do you think this story exemplifies the treatment of Native Americans during the first three decades of the twentieth century, and you know how it exemplifies U.S. Indian policy during that period as well?
0: Well, I think primarily it uh, kind of shows up as the. You know, cherry on top of the Sunday of, of the whole very patronizing and very um, paternalistic federal policy that had been in place for quite some time. Um, it, I always say it was better than the previous policy of annihilation, which had been the government policy when they were trying to, to actually wipe out Native Americans from the country. But when they decided to assimilate, uh, Native Americans into the culture, the first thing they felt they had to do was simply erase their culture. And that's when they started uh, sending children thousands of miles away to boarding schools and separating them from their parents and their culture and giving them new names and telling them, you know, their old ways were bad and so on. And that whole mindset that Native American culture simply was not worth anything Uh, I think, drove a lot of decisions that were made. You know, the the people in office, I don't want to say were horrible people. They were just living in the mindset of their times, and I think that's important to remember. You know, don't judge the 100 years ago or almost 100 years ago by the time, you know, today's uh, thinking, but the idea that they could dictate to Native Americans where they'd go to get mental health treatment and the type of mental health treatment they would get, I think that was just second nature because, um, you know, Native Americans did accept the fact that there were some people who had some issues, uh, mental uh, issues or, or that sort of thing. They did not go about treating that in the same way that Americans did. And, um, you know, rather than give Native Americans anything that would cater to their culture, they just plopped them right in the middle of a, of an Americanized institution and expected that to, to work. And it just didn't. It just couldn't work for them.
1: So I'm curious too about some of the choices that you made in the text and also, um, you know, your, your research and the archival materials that you use for the book. So first, I just wanted to ask, you know, in, in the text, when you're talking about the conditions at Canton, you evoke some pretty, um, intense images, you know, of inmates chained to beds or, you know, lying in excrement. And I'm, you know, I'm curious if you hesitated at all about highlighting these stories or, you know, what role you think they serve in, in the broader narrative of the facility's history.
0: I made the decision to talk about the conditions because uh, in, in graphic detail, number one, some of that was already out on the internet. Uh, this uh, Silk report, uh, Dr. Samuel Silk from St. Elizabeths, that report, you know, of course it's public because it's uh, a government report and, you know, other people before me had had found it somewhere. And that's where Uh, I saw some of that, my initial search where I was thinking, is this place real? I saw some of that. So it was out there anyway. But I also felt that um, because I was writing for a non-Native audience, Native people don't need to be convinced that they had poor treatment. But I think sometimes a non-Native audience don't, uh, does not realize the extent to which native peoples were treated badly, and so I I simply felt that um, being graphic was uh, certainly appropriate uh, to make sure people got a clear picture, and and um, and I also wanted to buck the trend that a lot of of uh, what happened at Canton was throughout the years uh, minimized and uh, hidden and uh, Covered up and and that sort of thing, and the time was was over. You know, I, I think that first website that I ever saw that even addressed the fact that the place existed. I think that was sort of the point where now let's talk about it, what really happened there. And so I I didn't uh, I didn't hesitate to to say whatever I felt was going to be illuminating about the place.
1: Mm-hmm. Now I'm curious too. Then you know, sort of as a follow up question. If, you know, many non-Native communities that you might speak to are aware of this institution and its history and the conditions. And, you know, if people, particularly, again, non-Native people, if they're more surprised about this history than, you know, Native communities that you may have talked to.
0: Overall, I think that non-Native people just absolutely don't know anything about it um, because it is a story that is just now starting to come out. And actually, when I was in grad school, um, I talked about. Uh, I wrote a report that uh, I presented in in class about uh, boarding schools, Indian boarding schools, and nobody in class had ever heard of them. This was in a grad grad level history class. Um, so I, I was. I'm pretty sure that not many people you know, would, would have any reason whatsoever to know about it. And so much of the information is very obscure. You know, you can't just walk into a library and find information about it. You have to physically go to the National Archives. You have to physically go and and find some of this information. And most people just aren't going to be doing that, you know, even if they you know find the topic very interesting. It's just not there to find. Um, as far as Canton goes, uh, I think they they've always known about it um of course because it uh especially during its existence for for the many years you know they were quite proud of it and um you know later on i think uh, some things probably have come out and and they're reassessing you know how badly maybe that that it was run but actually some very interesting things are going on in canton now um they are working. Uh, the city of Canton is working very actively to uh, get information out. And uh, they work with a group called the, the keepers of the Canton native asylum story. Um, who work towards reconciliation and work towards an understanding of what went on. And, and it's a long process and, you know, just so many tribes are involved and, and so on, but um the city of Canton now, I think, has totally reversed, you know, its previous mindset about it. They're they're quite eager eager to, you know, get the story out and and uh, understand what happened and and uh, you know breach you know cross cross that breach that that happened. And you know, it's a time consuming process, but they are definitely uh, willing to do it.
1: So they're ex- in- investigating the, the history of the institution. Are they also working to commemorate or memorialize it?
0: Native American, uh, I believe he, uh, several years ago, um, I want to say his name was Harold Ironshield. I I might not be positive exactly with that name. He was a Native American uh, who started a, an honoring ceremony. There's a grave, uh, there's a cemetery on the old Canton grounds. The, the asylum itself has been torn down, but, uh, the city of Canton, uh, uses that, uh, property and, and there's a, a cemetery there with a lot of unmarked graves. There's only a couple of graves that are marked and every, usually it seems like it's in May, uh, there's an honoring ceremony that various tribes go to and send representatives to, uh, that take, a, take the time to respect and honor, you know, the, the patients who were there and, uh, you know, mistreated and forgotten, you know, don't even have a, a marker, uh, for their gravesite. And, uh, there are historians who are, city historians who are working to try and uncover more information. One of the problem is, is that um, it hasn't been until this story came out that other information started to surface. You know, people maybe had something in their attic or, you know, someone's great aunt talked about something and, you know, they just never thought about it. But now that the story is coming out through the efforts of the the keepers group and, and my book and other people who have written about it, people are becoming more aware that it's a public story that they may be able to contribute to. So I think that a lot of information will come out over the next few years. And um, and it's bound to be pretty interesting because it, it won't be government information, probably, uh, to a great extent. So I, I'm eager to see what uh, what the city uncovers over time.
1: I was curious, too, if the list of former patients that you include at the end of your book, is that part of, you know, an effort to sort of honor the memory of the men and women who were institutionalized at Canton?
0: Uh, absolutely. I, uh, like I said, I wrote the book mainly for a non-Native audience, but that list is for the Native audience. Because uh, I just, I felt it was important. Number one, what I didn't realize until way, way later, right before the book was going to be published, that a lot of descendants of these patients did not realize that their ancestors had been at the asylum. And, uh, there was a lot of surprise. They, I gave this list to the keepers groups and they circulated it to the different, uh, 53 tribes involved and, um, put a lot of effort into trying to cushion the the surprise. And there were apparently, and of course, I, I didn't have a lot of direct contact with this or any really, except through the keepers group, but there were a lot of people who didn't realize that they had family in the institution. So I I think uh, that serves a, a good purpose that, you know, there's not a lot of information in the, the book about, family, but it's a good
1: starting point for, you know, for the research if they're able to do it. Absolutely. Now, in terms of your own research, what types of sources and archival materials did you rely on and how were you able to incorporate native voices and perspectives into your work since, you know, those uh, voices and perspectives were not necessarily recorded or valued by those, you know, making and keeping the records at the time uh, the institution was open.
0: Well, I'd be, I relied very extensively on uh, the archival material on Canton and uh, some from St. Elizabeth's uh, at the National Archives in Washington DC. And I lived in that area. I, I just feel like at that time I was meant to write the book. I lived in the area. I could get to it. I could go over the material three or four or five times, uh, which a lot of you know, visiting researchers wouldn't be able to do. And I relied on that. There was another uh, archival repository in Kansas City, uh, Missouri, and I got a lot of information from that. Um, I also uh, read hundreds of articles from the American Journal of Insanity that really, uh, there were a couple of, uh, Articles in there about the Canton Asylum, um, kind of filtered through Dr. Hummer for the most part. But I did find mention of the asylum in other journals and stuff. But I I relied for the a lot of the psychiatric information from the, the American Journal of Insanity. And it's kind of uh, interesting. Uh, you think of archival material as being really uh, deep and. <laughs> informative and necessary and all that, but I found all kinds of stuff, um, you know, bill for a horse and, uh, you know, uh, receipts for this and that and and, uh, just all kinds of correspondence. And I did find letters from patients to the Commissioner of Indian Affairs. And I guess at the time what happened was the uh, patient... There were certain rights that evolved for patients over time as as the era went on, and, and this was nothing directly. This had probably evolved quite a, a time before that. But patients had a right to to write letters, and uh, and they did feel the commissioner of Indian Affairs was their contact, and they would write letters to him, and he in turn then would evidently make a copy or send the letter back to Dr. Hummer, to, Dr. Or to Oscar Gifford, the civilian or the non-medical superintendent, and ask him to answer it in some way. And so a lot of those, not a lot, but some of those kinds of letters were preserved. Now, a lot of patients couldn't write English or you know, speak English or whatever, so there's not a lot of them but the ones that I read were pretty illuminating as far as, you know, how these people felt about things and, and so on. And, and sometimes I could piece together information about certain patients from just a lot of correspondence and records that uh, you, you just had to have the whole conglomeration of material. And then you could kind of figure out, Oh, you know, that came in with this diagnosis and here's kind of what happened to them. And, oh, they did get out or didn't get out or whatever. And so I was able to do that to some extent, too. Um, But unfortunately, there just isn't a lot of information about individual patients
1: as people. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe more will emerge, you know, based on your efforts and based on the book. That would be a great result.
0: That it will. I really do. I I am sure that there are things uh, in people's attics and family collections and so on that will eventually come out. And I I think that's just going to be great when that happens.
1: Absolutely. So um, before I let you go, I'll just ask you one more question here at the beginning of the book. You mentioned that you had not previously considered writing about native American history. So I'm curious if, if writing this book and researching this book has made you want to tell other stories and if you might have anything, you know, in the works in terms of native American history.
0: Uh, I don't have anything in the works as far as uh, native American history. Um, And, and a lot of that, um, Depends on the story. You know, when I came across the Canton story, I was just captivated by it. And, you know, it's not a matter of me sitting down and saying, Oh, I'd like to write about native Americans. And then somehow finding a topic, you know, because everybody else can do that too. Somehow the topic has to come to you uh, that everybody and his brother has written about. And, and, uh, you know, I was just blessed that this topic sort of fell into my, my lap at the right time for me to write about it. So, If I found a story that was as compelling or as unknown, that's what I really liked about it was it wasn't a familiar story. Uh, I would certainly write about it, but I haven't come across that yet. Um, Probably, unfortunately, I would say, but no, I, I am not writing anything at the moment about Native American history, though I would certainly like to and be open to doing it.
1: Excellent. I hope something falls in your lap soon. <laughs> um, Carla, I just want to thank you so much for speaking with me about your book, Vanished in Hiawatha, the story of the Canton Asylum for Insane Indians, and for being on the show today. It was a pleasure. No,
0: well, I appreciate it very much.